In July 1981, Dave Yerian saw John Backer's well-known Volkswagen bus pull into the Camp 4 parking lot and drive right over to him. Backer stops the bus in front of him, dust swirling in the air, and he looks at Dave and in the most casual, normal-sounding tone that he could muster, he asks, Hey Dave, want to do a new route? Dave looks at John, the best climber in the world at the time, and he asks, Well, is it going to be worth it? Backer says, get in. Over the next few days, the two of them would put up one of the most infamous and controversial routes in the entire world. Here's John talking about it in his own words, in his last recorded interview before his untimely death in 2009. You know, we climbed this thing, didn't even think we could, didn't think we could hang out hooks, and we ended up doing this weird tactic, and it worked. And we got to the top... And, you know, it's only a 400-foot climb or 500 feet, whatever. And um, just for a joke, um, you know, there's the great climbs like the Snard Herbert, the Steck Salathe, um, all, these, all these routes. And, and just to kind of tweak people, um, we knew it would tweak people. and say, like, who names the route after themselves? And so we're going to just call it um, the Backer Urian, you know. Um, because like people were starting to talk about rap bolting and stuff and we actually like faced the challenge like we're going to go up this thing we're not going to rap bolt it we're not going to chicken out do any of this other stuff non-climbing and so we're going to uh, just call it back of urine and we know people are going to laugh and go look at those guys they call it the back of urine oh who do they think they are and blah 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 and we're, we're just kind of giggling inside until some people start going up there and going Holy shit, this thing's a nightmare. By the end of the 500-foot face climb, he had only placed 13 bolts, and that includes anchors. And he wasn't just putting up a climb. He was making a statement. In the face of immense change in the climbing world, he was making a statement about what he believed was the right way to climb. Today, let's dive into the history of the Backer Yerian, a four-pitch 511RX climb in Tuolumne Meadows. This story is packed with fascinating history, so much so that I'm actually going to break this story up into two parts. In the first episode, I'm going to talk about the series of events that led to John Backer and Dave Yerian putting up this route, and how they did it. Then, in the next episode, we're going to look into how the climbing community reacted to this route, and some of the historical repeats, including another climbing legend trying to snag the second ascent before taking a 100-foot whipper and never getting on it again. Welcome to A Brief History of Climb. I'm James Howell, and this is the story of the Backer Yerian. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. John Backer was born in 1957 in Southern California, and he grew up as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American kid. His dad was a math professor, and from a young age, it was clear that John shared his father's intellect and dedication to what they cared about. 
1971, at age 14, he tried climbing for the very first time at Stony Point, a small but legendary outcrop of cliffs and boulders that lie inside the LA city limits. Although it's not much to write home about, climbers have actually been training there for decades. When Yosemite wasn't in season, Stony Point was the place to go and boulder and train and make connections with other climbers. So right away, Backer is rubbing shoulders with legends of the sport, people like Bob Camps, a Yosemite climbing pioneer and prolific first ascensionist. Backer met him almost immediately after starting climbing at Stony Point. And this would have an important effect on his climbing ethics, which I'm going to talk about shortly. At that point in 1971, when he first started, he could do exactly two pull-ups, but he immediately fell in love with climbing. By 1973, however, he would be able to do 27 pull-ups. He could, at that point, climb pretty much anything at Stony Point, and he was starting to explore crags that were further from home. Backer just absolutely loved climbing. He loved the freedom and the athleticism, but perhaps most of all, he loved the mental game of climbing and training because it required discipline and quieting the mind and believing in yourself to get to the top of something. By 1975, he had just finished high school for context, he was spending the summer season in Yosemite. Keep in mind, this is four years after he started climbing. It's there that along with Ron Kauk, he put up the first recognized 512 in Yosemite Valley, a route that the two of them named Hotline. That year, he also did the first free ascent of Astroman on Half Dome, now one of the most famous climbs in the entire world. And that same summer, he put up the Free Blast on El Capitan, which Alex Honnold famously would solo in 2017. So by age 18, he is already truly pushing the sport forward into the next level of difficulty. Along with his advancements in the sport, off the wall he was also developing. Way ahead of his time, he would read books on diet and movement, philosophy and training, and he would apply the principles that he learned in these books towards his climbing. One of his favorite books was The Tao of Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee, He's the famous martial artist and actor. The Tao of Jeet Kune Do is a book about the philosophy of martial arts, but Backer could see parallels into the climbing world. An example of something that he took away from that book was that when it comes to gripping holds, you should actually focus more on letting go of the hold rather than trying to grip it harder. Learning exactly how much you need to grip and no more, you could save a bunch of energy and you could use that later on in the climb. Backer would also become world famous for his training regimes. Similar to John Gill, who I talked about in the last episode, he was one of the first climbers who really recognized that if I train a bunch off of the rock, it is going to make me a better climber when I'm on the rock. He would train using invented apparatus that he built in Camp 4. Famously, he'd do laps on this thing called the Backer Ladder, an elbow-destroying campus ladder that he would string between trees. He'd also boulder constantly in order to build power and endurance. 
A classic example of this is Gunsmoke in Joshua Tree, which is a 50-foot V3 traverse that John would do laps on. Sometimes he would do 100 laps on this thing without ever stepping off of it in order to build strength and endurance. It was through bouldering that he discovered his biggest love in climbing. The boulders that he climbed, they got higher and higher until you couldn't really call it bouldering anymore. It was free soloing. And to say that he was a prolific free soloist would be an understatement. John, in the 1970s, without a rope, he was doing things that people had never imagined before. Here he is again from that interview from earlier, and he shares a little bit about how his mental game applied to soloing. This will play into his approach for the Bakuriarian that we're going to talk about a little bit later. I think maybe it's confidence, you know. They're not confident that um, confident in, in themselves that they can, their body will do what their mind tells them to do every single time, I think is a big part of it. You know, like you see people that can like draw a line on the ground and go, okay, let's stand right here next to this line, you know, and, and, and you're on flat ground and, and you know, are you going to fall over the line? Um, no, no, I'm cool. But then put them on a, a building, top of a building, and you go, okay, stand here, there's a line right here, and here's, well, the edge of the building's line. Stand there. No way, man, I'm not standing there. You know, and other people will just be able to walk right up and go, yep, what's the difference between standing here next to the line and standing on top of a building next to the line? There's no difference. Soloing to backer was the ultimate expression of perfection in climbing. He would describe it in one word, pure. To John, pure climbing was critically important. When soloing, it came naturally because of the lack of safety equipment and the need for total commitment. But even with a rope, he followed a strict code of ethics in order to ensure what he called purity. Check out this interview. That's a tough question. I think, well, you know, there's, and there's so many different kinds of ethics. There's like environmental ethics, there's competitive ethics. Uh, all that kind of stuff. So I think from an environmental ethical standpoint, uh, I always try to not um, try try to not hurt the rock as much as you can, you know, because like, you know, gluing and chipping and stuff like that, for me, it's just crazy. But even just putting bolts in, you're changing the thing forever. And it's not just your rock, you know, it's like other people are going to have to enjoy this thing. And they, and they want to enjoy it. So, like, if you just waltz in and put a bolt ladder in, that's probably not too cool because other people are going to go, dude, you know, it's like there's a bolt every five feet. This is kind of ridiculous. Um, so, I don't know. I think you should try to respect the rock that way. Uh, style, I guess that's probably mostly would refer to your style of ascent. Um, and um, I, I, you know, for me, I always try to do, I'd rather do something in good style than just fudge my way up it, you know. I'd rather leave it alone if I can't do it in a certain style and let somebody else do it, you know. So what were Backer's ethics? Well, here, let's break them down. In a nutshell, this is what he considered to be good style. It was okay to use chalk. And it was fine to try a route more than once. It was actually also okay to keep trying the route after you fell, so long as you return to the ground and you restart 
every single time that you fall. Bolts were okay, but they could only be used sparingly, and you were only allowed to use bolts when you couldn't use things like nuts or other forms of protection. On the other side of the spectrum, what was not fair? Well, bolting on rappel, for example, the opposite of ground-up climbing. He absolutely hated the idea of wrapping into something, putting bolts on it, and then climbing it. Going along with that, he also hated hangdogging or working roots, basically sitting on the rope mid-route in order to work out a section. He was really against that. And of course, he was against chipping or altering the route in any way. The way that he saw it is that to go against these ethics, it would negate the pioneers, people like Bob Camps, who he had met in Stony Point all those years before. It would go against them, who had always ventured ground up into whatever unpredictable mysteries the rock presented them. They, he believed that by following these ethics, you could continue to push into more and more difficult terrain with each subsequent generation. Here's one more quick clip from that interview with Backer explaining his reasoning. Well, I don't know. Climbing, I think, is about style as much as it is um, getting to the summit. So uh, anybody can, a telephone repairman can get to the summit of El Cap, you know. But how you do it is, is the whole, it's the whole game, you know. How do you do it? And what kind of style can you pull it off in? Following these ethics, the rest of the 1970s were all about Backer. He was constantly pushing the limit and doing things on the rock that nobody thought was possible. He was absolutely the best climber in the world. But along with the start of the 1980s, things began changing in the climbing world. The ground up traditional style that ruled the 70s it started to be questioned by the next generation of climbers. In Europe, specifically in places like France and Southern Germany, the climbing atmosphere was starting to get excited with the prospect of rappel bolted sport climbing. And that type of climbing, it focused more on athletic ability and hard moves instead of scary, bold, ground up climbing, the type of climbing that Backer seemed to love. Sport climbing, it involved working routes, tons of falling, using siege tactics and other tactics in order to work out moves, and hang-dogging impressively hard routes into existence. Using these tactics, new standards of difficulty were being found. And pro climbers of the day, they could see that change and evolution was in the air. So in May 1981, a German magazine called Sportcheck organized an international climbing meet in Germany. The purpose of this meetup was to build connections and share tactics and continue to build climbing as a sport. The biggest names in climbing were all there. People like Ron Fawcett, Heinz Mariocker, and a very young Wolfgang Gulick, who we're going to return to later in the story of the Backer-Yarian. The guest of honor was John Backer. Some of these climbers had radically different views of climbing than Backer did. They would absolutely repel into roots from above. They would work out moves as they went along, and they would hangdog. These were all things that Backer considered to be unethical. 
So during the meetup, Backer made it his mission to demonstrate to these Europeans his uncompromising style. He wanted to show that you could still climb hard routes without using these new tactics. And he delivered. He absolutely blew the Europeans away. Apparently, it was like verging on theatrical. He's hanging from one hand on overhangs, turning back to look at the crowd and just impressing everybody there. During the meetup, he climbed all of their hardest routes, ground up and on site. Then he did the first ascent of an open project that followed this steep line of pockets up an overhanging series of bulges, and he named it Chasing the Train, which was Germany's first 13A, and according to Wolfgang Gullick, it made Backer an instant star. And it also inspired European climbers to keep pushing hard free climbing to the next level. On that climb, Backer refused to rehearse moves or hangdog. He did it in his style with his ethics. And he did it that way to prove that these new tactics weren't necessary to climb hard. But despite his efforts, most climbers left that international meet seeing the writing on the wall. It was clear that climbing was changing and tactics were changing. Everybody at this meetup was talking about it. And it wouldn't be long before things like hangdogging and working routes would see climbers far surpassing Backer's abilities. In hindsight, that international climbing meet, it was almost like a final grasp for the American climbing ethics and its champion. Even Backer had a sense of this. He could see it coming. But he wasn't done fighting for what he thought was right. He felt that he had to be a vanguard for the pure ethics that he believed in. So he returned to America with a plan. In early summer 1981, Backer returns to America and heads to Yosemite. But instead of hanging out in the valley, his plan is to spend most of his time in Tuolumne Meadows. Tuolumne Meadows is located in the eastern part of Yosemite National Park. It has a very different feel than the sweeping, massive cliffs found in the valley. In Tuolumne, a subalpine meadow is studded with massive granite domes. And on these domes, there are plenty of slabby and vertical faces. On the faces, they have crimps and small granite knobs, and they're perfect for climbing. But there are less cracks, and this meant that there was less opportunity for traditional climbing. Some people were already saying that Tuolumne was the perfect area to experiment with sport climbing, given the incredible face climbs that could be done there. One dome in particular, Medlicott Dome, had a massive vertical face that was begging to be climbed, but people were already saying that it would be impossible to do it from the ground up. Here's why. Until that time, Bolts in Yosemite were always placed from no-hands stances. What that meant is that you always had to find places to drill where you could let go of the rock with both hands. On less than vertical terrain, this is usually possible, but 
this dome was far too steep with holds far too small to do it. But Backer had an idea. In Germany, he heard about how the Dresden climbers were putting up bold new face climbs. They had really similar ground-up ethics to Yosemite. But what they were doing was hanging from knotted slings, stuffed in cracks and maybe into pockets, in order to place a few widely spaced bolts. These slings, they were only good enough for body weight. They definitely wouldn't be able to hold a fall. But while you were just sitting and placing this bolt, you were able to sit there. The way that they saw it, if you use this tactic to put up a new route, and you kept the number of bolts down with big runouts in between them, their ethic would stay intact and you could create bold new free climbs. Backer was intrigued by this style. In his words, quote, it was a compromise, but that would allow me to leave the rock as unmarked as I could and still make the first ascent ground up. The farther apart the bolts were, the more of an artistic statement I could make about the value of skill over technology. And this is where the biggest controversy of this route begins, this compromise, as Backer calls it. As I mentioned earlier, part of Backer's pure ethics included no hanging, no sitting on the rope. And he was very firm in his stance against it. He was actually totally okay with getting into people's faces who he believed was breaking these ethics. If he thought you were bending the ethics, he would let you know that he did not approve. I'm not saying whether the way he planned to put up this route was ethical or not. Really, that's for you to decide on your own based on your ethics. But it's clear that Backer was doing some mental gymnastics to explain why it was okay for him to put up this route in this fashion. And the controversy gets deeper as the story goes on. So how did he do it? Below the dome, Backer found some boulders with the same features that were on the wall. And for one week, he practiced this technique of placing bolts while sitting on slings. He realized that slinging the knobs didn't really work as well as using sky hooks, these little metal hooks, to hook over the crystals and knobs instead. And he found that these metal sky hooks actually worked really well. For the next couple of weeks, he put up a couple of easier routes, including a terrifying 510 called You Asked For It that only has three bolts over 200 feet of climbing. But it was further to the left side of the dome from this route where he saw a line that was calling his name. It followed a black streak up a vertical, steep part of a dome. He decided to solo the slabby start of this first pitch and managed to place a single bolt 60 feet off the ground by skyhooking a small knob and hand drilling. Looking above him, he saw a sea of black granite with millions of tiny crystals, crimps, and knobs shining in the sunlight above him. He didn't know if it would go, but he knew he wanted to find out. So he went to go and find a partner. Dave Yerian was another diehard Yosemite climber. He was not as skilled as John, but he was certainly no chump either. He could hold his own, and most importantly, in John's words, 
Dave was loyal, and he would protect his friends with his life if he thought that they were in danger. When they pulled up in front of this ominous black streak leading up Medlicott Dome, Dave was puzzled. This wall had no obvious cracks or features where you could place gear. John looked at him and said, See, that's what we're here for. Isn't it the most beautiful line that you've ever seen? Dave had never seen such a steep and continuous face climb in his life. We're going up that thing, he asked. The only reason he went along with it was because he he was with the best climber in the world. They put on their harnesses and Backer soloed up to his high point where he had placed the bolt the day before. He clipped it. Above him was 400 feet of vertical, crimpy terrain that had never been climbed before. All he had on his harness were a few pieces of gear and sky hooks and slings. He took a breath, looked down, and asked Dave if he was ready. The trembling voice replied, yes. He starts pulling on crimps and climbing methodically. Ten feet above that first bolt that he had placed, he finds a skyhook placement. So he sets the hook and starts hand drilling another bolt. It went smoothly, and he felt emboldened that this crazy plan might just work. After a short rest, he keeps climbing. But this time, he isn't able to find another hook placement. He's more than 20 feet above that last bolt. And the tiny crystals and crimps, they just keep going. They're luring him upward, further and further from safety. Then he spots a sharp little knob and he slips a sling over it and clips it. But he knows that it's almost certainly never going to hold a fall. A bit higher, he manages to get a nut into an expanding flake, but this placement is bad. Things are starting to get really sketchy and he is way above his last solid bolt. Not only that, but above the flake, he spots what is likely the crux or the hardest part of the pitch. It's an insecure lieback consisting of around eight to 10 moves with a ledge above it. He knows that if he falls there and the two sketchy pieces below him fail, he's gonna fall at least 50 feet onto those slabs at the bottom of the climb. John Backer didn't know it yet, but what he was leading towards was one of the biggest whippers that he ever took in his career. For now, in this episode, we're going to pause here. Let's pick it up next time. We'll continue talking about the story of the backer Yeri, what the remaining pitches were like, what the reaction from the climbing community was, and some of those historical repeats that happened after the climb went up. This is a fascinating climb and a fascinating piece of history, and I appreciate you joining me. I look forward to having you back next time. Thanks for listening to A Brief History of Climb. I'm James Howell, and have a good one.